invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 14. I'm going to cover a lengthy section in Luke today, Luke 14 verses 1 through 24. Uh, it's one story uh, where Jesus is invited to uh, a dinner. And while he's there, uh, he exposes the self-righteous hypocrisy, the self-exalting pride, the self-serving hospitality, as well as the insincere spirituality of the dinner guests. And so we're going to consider uh, Jesus confronting this group uh, today. But before we do, and before we read our passage, let's pray once again for the Lord's help. Lord, we remember that uh, your word is able to make us wise to salvation through faith in Jesus, that your word is profitable for teaching us uh, truth. It's profitable for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. And so we pray today that you would show us again the way of salvation through your son. We pray that you would teach us the truth we pray that where necessary, you would rebuke us and show us where we are crooked. And we pray that you would, with your word, correct us and make us straight and whole again so that we might be more useful servants in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited, shall taste my banquet. Well, sometimes, in order to go up, you must first go down. Uh, A man named Ronald Pinkerton learned this strange paradox uh, once while he was hang gliding. (coughs) While he was In the air, he rose to several thousand feet until suddenly a strong down current sent him plummeting to the ground. He plummeted several thousand feet and couldn't get out from this this strong down current of air. And when he was only 400 feet or so above the tree line, he looked off to his right and beside him was a red-tailed hawk that looked like it was committing suicide. It was aimed straight at the ground at a tremendous velocity. Uh, well, he didn't make much of it, and, but within the next few seconds, coming to terms with the fact that he was about to die, he had this thought cross his mind, follow the hawk. <laughs> and he thought, well, why not? I'm as good as dead anyway. So he did his best to point his hang glider straight down at the ground. And as soon as he did, the hawk soared up past him. And a second later, he was caught by a warm gust of air that sent him back up uh, into the sky. Uh, Pinkerton uh, is, I think, a physical illustration of a spiritual principle that is basic to the gospel and the Christian life. That the way up in the economy of God's kingdom is first to go down in humility. And the problem for these Pharisees and lawyers and others who are present at this dinner party is that they are insisting on exalting themselves, building themselves up, promoting themselves before God and their fellow man. And Jesus intends to show them that the way up is first the way down. I want us to see what Jesus does uh, in this whole story. Uh, Four things. And and the first thing we need to see in the first six verses is the way that Jesus exposes self-righteous hypocrisy. 
Uh, Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house. And the whole thing smells like a setup. <coughs> um, he, he's invited, first of all, to a Pharisee's home, a prominent Pharisee's home. And it's on the Sabbath. And uh, the Pharisees have already made a stink about Jesus healing and showing mercy to people on the Sabbath, saying it breaks <clears throat> at least their Sabbath rules. And sure enough, Jesus enters into this Pharisee's home. And what's the very first thing Jesus encounters? He encounters a man suffering from dropsy or edema, a, a, a painful condition involving the retention of bodily fluids. Here's a man who is desperately in need of help. Uh, but these Pharisees, they have created a list of man-made rules and regulations which would keep Jesus uh, from showing mercy on the Sabbath. So a list of rules and regulations that told you what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And in verse 3, they used their man-made rules and regulations to try to catch Jesus out. They were essentially using this suffering man as a, as a pawn to try to draw Jesus out so that they could catch him. This is exactly what legalists love to do. Uh, they, they, they like to use their man-made rules and regulations and apply them to others in order to condemn them so that they can exalt themselves, so that they can, they can establish their own spirituality. But Jesus, Jesus knew what these guys were up to, so he, isn't it interesting how Luke puts it? He responded to them. That's interesting because up to this point, no one has spoken to Jesus, but Jesus knows the game that they're playing, so he directs a question towards them and says, Is it, let, let's just get to the point here. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent. Of course they did, because they couldn't answer him. On the basis of their own religious principles, it, it, it wasn't permissible for Jesus <coughs> to heal on the Sabbath day. But they couldn't say that, because as soon as they did, their own callous heartlessness would be on display. So instead... They opted to remain silent and not answer him. And Jesus didn't wait around for an answer. He, he, uh, he showed mercy to this man. He healed the man with dropsy and sent him away. Apparently the man wasn't even really a part of the, the dinner party. Or perhaps Jesus was just trying to get him away from these individuals who didn't care about him at all. Just wanted to use them in their schemes. But Jesus wasn't done with the Pharisees and the lawyers. He asked another question. Which of you, having a son or an ox fall into a well on the Sabbath day, would not immediately seek to deliver them, rescue them, get them out of the well? And once again, they didn't say a word. In other words, what I think Luke is telling us is that their opposition to Jesus is utterly hypocritical. It's callous. They, they were using or trying to use their man-made rules and regulations in order to resist Jesus. But it's also inhumane in the extreme. They, they didn't care about the man with dropsy. He was, he was an expendable pawn that they could use to try to catch Jesus out. But it's, it's utterly hypocritical, Jesus is saying, because if you had your own son or even one of your farm animals, one of your oxen fall into a well, you would do everything within your power to rescue them. But you see, they are so intent 
on resisting Jesus, that they are willing to deny this man mercy so that they can accuse Jesus and excuse themselves. And so Jesus is exposing religious hypocrisy. And and I take it to mean in particular here that no matter how good a person's religion may appear to be, insofar as it stands in the way of people experiencing the grace and mercy that Jesus came to bestow, so far is it a callous and useless religion because it hinders and forbids and even prevents people from coming to the one person who is able to give them what they need. And so I asked myself, and I hope you'll ask yourself this question too, are there there elements of religious hypocrisy in my life that actually keep people from experiencing the grace and mercy of Christ? That's what's happening in this story, the callousness, the hypocrisy of these Pharisees and lawyers, if they had their way, would have kept Jesus from helping this man. And dear friends, we don't want to be in the camp of the the Pharisees and the lawyers of Jesus' day and by our religious hypocrisy and man-made regulations actually keep people from coming to Jesus. Let's move on, though, to the dinner party in verses 7 through 11, where, where we, see, we see the self-promoting, self-exalting snobbery of these guests. And here Jesus condemns or warns us about the sin of pride and calls us to humility. Verse 7 tells us he told a parable to those who were invited, and that's a, that's a bold move from Jesus because uh, you know, here he is in this prominent Pharisee's home and, and he's watching all of these people make their way to their, their seats and he notices that they take places of honor. And Jesus said to them all then, when, as he's telling them this parable, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. And so Jesus looks at He looks at these people and he sees them vying for places of honor uh, as they find their seats. This this was a major social event, and at least in this cultural context, where you sat said a lot about your importance. Uh, The table was likely uh, U-shaped, and the, the host of this banquet, the prominent Pharisee, he would have been seated in the middle at the top of the U. And so the places of honor and respectability would have been the the places as close to the host as you could get, right next to him if possible. And so Jesus watches this. All of these people make their way to to find their seats as close to the host as they can. And, And 
from outward appearances. This, this just looked perfectly normal to everybody else. This was indeed social etiquette of the day. And Jesus, though, he, he sees the inner motive. And Jesus calls out the self-exalting, self-promoting pride of these guests. But I think what Jesus does here could just as easily be applied to any social gathering, any social event, indeed any social media page today. Because we love to promote ourselves. We love to be first. We, we hate being last. We want people to think much of us and we despise it when people think little of us. You know, it pains us to recognize it, uh, but this self-exalting, self-promoting pride is absolutely a part of our lives. And, and Jesus knows that when he, when he lifts the lid on our ever so religious, ever so good, ever so upright, ever so respectable conduct, that, that really we're full of ourselves. Think about it at work. We, we want to be better than others. We get upset when someone is promoted over us or when we don't get the recognition we think we deserve. We want to be smarter than others in school. Even within the home, we, we demand recognition for all of the, the service that we render to others. Even within the church, <coughs> we want to be recognized for the service that we uh, that we give to others in the congregation. Because we, we want to be thought of more, more highly than others. We, we want others to think we're important, that we're a big deal, and we, we hate being thought of as last or least. And you see, with one short parable, Jesus peels back the paper-thin cover of our lives and reveals the cesspool underneath. And if if you, if you doubt that self-exalting pride is, is a problem, then I encourage you to just do some, do some honest thinking about pride. The, <laughs> the social self-exalting that we see in this story is just one manifestation of, of that hydra-headed beast that we call pride. Um, the... the, the the way that these people seek their own promotion is just one example of how pride can manifest itself in so many different ways, even, even in ways that at least on the surface appear virtuous and humble. And so the, I think the way to uncover pride is to first of all discover how it lurks below the surface of so much of what people do. Just think through some of these examples with me for, for a moment. The person who lies to protect themselves is, what, what are they really saying? They're saying, I must maintain my reputation at all costs, even if it means lying, distorting, twisting, or shading the truth. Uh, the greedy person says, is saying, I, I deserve this and I should have this because I'm worth it. Uh, the person driven by lust. Thought about this during Sunday school. What are they saying in their heart? They're saying, I want this pleasure and I will get it for myself even if it means going outside of godly parameters. The gossiper. 
I'm important because I have secrets to share. The angry person, how dare you not do what I say? How dare you cross me that way? The judgmental person, I'm always right and my ability to assess others is always flawless and spot on. The lazy, I have a right to use my time the way I see fit. Uh, The cheater, no way I should risk looking like a failure. The unrepentant, I'm never wrong, I don't make mistakes, so why should I ask you for forgiveness? Uh, The self-serving, I only do something for others if there's something in it for me. The self-absorbed, it's about my feelings, not yours. It's about my needs, not yours. It's about what I want, not what you want. Well, one more, the dogmatic. This is the person who says, I'm right, you're wrong, end of conversation, and if you don't share my view, you're a fool. And we could keep going and going and going here. This, this could be a very, very long list. But do you see what is at the root of all of those sins? What's at the root of all of those sins is self-exalting, self-promoting, self-advertising, self-serving pride. It's what Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 2 when he speaks about a group guilty of pride and he says they seek their own desires, their own interests. That's what a prideful person does. They seek their own interests over others. What they do is fundamentally at the heart level driven by self-promotion. Do you know how, how utterly... How utterly opposite, how utterly different is that from our Lord Jesus, dear friends? He chose not the best, but the worst. (laughs) He, He chose not a crown, but a cross. He came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He chose the humble road. Why? Because Jesus has a humble heart. It's who he is. What is God like? There's a principle I think that we need to always remember that there is nothing unchristlike in God. And Jesus in his life and ministry reveals something about the very character of God himself. Humility is one of the fundamental qualities in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Jesus shows us here that the the way up is first down. It's this fundamental principle that he, he teaches in, is it verse 14, where he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a, it's a principle that Jesus uh, teaches on three different occasions in the Gospels. Right, one day, though, when, the question we need to ask is, when's that going to take place? When are those who... The issue isn't being honored or exalted. The issue is self-exaltation, self-honor, self-promotion. And Jesus is saying that the day is coming when those who have spent their lives exalting self, and they're going to be humbled. 
Now it raises a question, when is that going to take place? The, the answer is it's going to fully and finally take place in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When, if I can put it this way, he is going to radically change the seating arrangements. And those who have spent their lives promoting self, exalting self, living for self, driven by the pride of their own hearts, Jesus is going to come and tap them on the shoulder and say, you need to get out of that seat. And then he's going to go to the lowliest at the end of the table and tap them on the shoulder and say, friend, move up higher. Now, I imagine, this is just uh, a little bit of speculation on my part, but I think it's justified that the things are not going the way that this prominent Pharisee had <laughs> anticipated when he hosted this, this dinner banquet. But things get worse for him. Because now Jesus speaks directly to the host of this banquet. And he says, let's have a look at your guest list, shall we? And what Jesus does here is he exposes the self-serving hospitality of this religious hypocrite. And he says, let's, uh, let's look at your guest list. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So let's have a look at your hospitality. When you last hosted a social gathering, why did you invite those people? You know, it's easy to show kindness to people who, who will help us in return, but it is hard for us to help and show kindness to people who will be nothing but trouble to us, isn't it? If we are honest, we have to admit that so many of our relationships are based on a sort of quid pro quo. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you help me out, I'll help you out. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you watch my kids, I'll watch yours. Now, let's, let's be careful here. There's nothing wrong with mutual assistance. But if that, if that arrangement dominates all of our relationships, then frankly, there is just too much self-interest involved for it to be a real demonstration of the mercy and the compassion and the humility of the Christ that we follow. And it could, at a deeper level, be an indicator that we have yet to deeply understand the mercy and compassion that has been shown to us in Christ. You know, often, often we, we, look, we look a lot less like Jesus and a lot more like Templeton and Charlotte's Web. I was just reminded of Templeton recently with Karis. Remember Templeton, the clever rat in Charlotte's Web? Um, uh, other farm or barn animals sometimes required his assistance but Templeton never did anything unless it served his own self-interests. So the question, and, and he had the courage to just you know, be upfront about it, the question that drove him was, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this arrangement? What am I going to get out of this if I do something, if I do this favor for you? 
And so Jesus says, your hospitality, who's it really about to this man? He says, it's about you. It's just about you. And he's exposing how deeply our self-interest really goes. Who do you spend time with and why? When was the last time you did something for someone who was not in any position to do something for you? When was the last time you spent time with the sick and the needy, the elderly or shut-ins? When was the last time you did something to care for the poor? And again, as we look at the challenge that Jesus is issuing here, I find myself saying to myself how different I am from our gracious God. To whom does God show kindness? To to the spiritually poor. To whom does God lavish gifts upon? To To the just and the unjust. Who did Jesus spend his time with? Uh, With the with the sick, with the lepers, with the poor, with the outcasts. When did Jesus die for us? Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who is Jesus concerned for? The the widows and the orphans and the outcasts, the oppressed. So, friends, if our hearts have been changed and are beating in rhythm with the heartbeat of our Lord Jesus Christ, One of the simple, practical questions we will ask ourselves is, who are we going to invite to our dinner parties? How will we show hospitality? Will it be to simply serve ourselves or to serve people who have nothing whatsoever to give us in return? Let me me say something about the the, the intent of this passage. Because, yes, there's definitely a challenge here for professing believers. I've been feeling it all week, and I just wanted to share that feeling with you. I don't know about you, but at this point in the passage, I'm I'm saying to myself, Jesus, that's enough. I'm not sure how much more of this I can take. It's, It's a sore passage to reflect upon. But I think we also, we need to remember that Jesus, yes, he wants to expose our self-serving, self-promoting motivations that are hidden just below the surface of so much of what we do. But he's not doing that to just beat us up and leave us the same. He is doing that so that we might afresh humble ourselves before him and confess our, our failures and say, Jesus, look at my social life. I am still a wreck. Often I'm guilty of self-righteous hypocrisy. Often I am am guilty of self-serving hospitality. Often I'm guilty of self-exalting pride. Would you please work in my life and make me more like yourself? But I think something we do need to remember as well is Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and lawyers and those who associated with this crowd. These these are individuals who refused Jesus, who refused in their hearts to enter through the narrow door, who were saying in their hearts, I want nothing to do with the Lord Jesus. My religious performance is good enough for God. I I have a guaranteed ticket into heaven. Well, let's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, let's just take a look for a moment at your motives. 
And so I think the direct application of this passage, if I can apply it this way, should be applied to the religious hypocrite who deep down believes that his performance is good enough for God and to the moral secularist who says, well, you know, if there's a heaven, I'm sure to get in. Jesus is saying, my friend, you are in deep, deep, deep trouble if that's what you think. Because your so-called righteousness, it's paper thin. Peel back the veneer for just a minute. And what do you see underneath? Self-righteous hypocrisy, self-exalting pride, self-serving hospitality, even your so-called generosity is motivated by self-promotion. And Jesus isn't done yet. You know, just when you think enough, enough is enough, instead of turning down the heat, Jesus turns up the gas. And, and now he exposes the insincere spirituality of folks in this house. Uh, <clears throat> he tells another parable. The punchline is at the end in verse 23, and the explanation is in verse 24. Uh, And the aim of the parable is to explain why none of these self-righteous, self-exalting religious hypocrites will enjoy the kingdom of God in the end. Uh, Verse 24, I tell you, now it's plural. Jesus is speaking to all of them at the dinner party. None of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Notice that language, my banquet banquet. Jesus is the host of this banquet that he's referring to. And that's a, that's a massive claim being made by the Lord Jesus because Jesus is alluding to Old Testament imagery where the Lord himself is the host of a great messianic banquet at the end of the age. So this is an aside, but that ridiculous claim that Jesus never claims to be God in the gospels Okay, well, you need to read your Old Testament and you read the New Testament in light of the Old. But let's go back here. Why is it that, why is it that these people will not taste his banquet? Why is it that some refuse to enter the narrow door that leads to eternal life? This parable is intended to explain why. Uh, I think in order to understand the parable, though, we, we need to just for a second try to understand how banquets worked in the first century. Because, well... There was no refrigeration. So, (coughs) excuse me, the host of the banquet would send out invitations into the community, notifying people that a a banquet was scheduled to occur. Then, you know, the, the, uh, the animals would be slaughtered, the food would be prepared, and when everything was put together, a servant of the house would be sent out into the community to say that, you know, the day has arrived, the food is ready, come and feast, come and enjoy the banquet. Now you see what Jesus is saying. These, these religious people had received God's invitation to this great banquet now for centuries. For, for centuries, they had been hearing about the the banquet God had planned with his people and his Messiah. And now when they are are being invited to come by the the Lord's servant, they refused. And the excuses they made are are utterly pathetic. That's the point of this passage. And and verses 17 through 20. The first first man makes the excuse of, uh, well, 
please, ha- please have me excused because I've purchased a plot of land and I need to go examine it. I mean, really? <laughs> who, who buys a, a plot of land without first seeing it and inspecting it? You didn't, you didn't go and check on the soil conditions or the terrain or the water supply. You just, you just bought it and now you're going to go look at it. Okay, that's ridiculous. And then the second, the second excuse is, well, please excuse me, uh, I've purchased five oxen and I need to go examine them. Uh, five oxen is the first century, first century equivalent of a farming tractor. And you can ask the Van Graus later how expensive a farming tractor is and whether they would uh, buy a used one without ever having looked it over. This is really, you're going to buy five oxen without ever having examined them prior and, and now that's your excuse? Come on. Now the third one is the worst of the lot because... This person doesn't even ask to be excused. It's just a rude, blatant rejection of the invitation. And, uh, and it's ridiculous to the core. Uh, I've, I, I got married, so I can't make it. Really, think about, think about what's being said. Since you received the first invitation not too long ago, you've met a girl and you got married. I mean, come on. That's, that's, this passage is meant to make you laugh when you read it. That's how ridiculous these excuses really are. But think about this. Anyone who has attended a wedding reception or an honors banquet or some other kind of special dinner knows how wonderful it is to be invited and to come and, and enjoy the feast. And this is what Jesus is announcing to the to the people of God, everything needed for salvation is ready because God has prepared it in and through his son. The forgiveness of sins through the cross. Life everlasting through the resurrection. And we've been invited by God's invitation to that great banquet. And all we need to do is come. See, Jesus is saying, you've received an invitation. The feast is prepared. And if you are not there on that great last day. It will only be because of your lame excuses. Jesus was saying this to Israel's religious leaders. They they received God's first invitation in, in the Old Testament through the prophets. But when God's servant came to summon them, they deliberately refused and even insulted him by refusing to come in humble faith. But you know, dear friends, a lot of people treat Jesus exactly the same way today. They have, they have been invited, but will not come. Some say they will, but they, but they never do. They, they offer the, essentially the same lame excuses that we read about in this parable. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm too busy pursuing you know, worldly pursuits. I'm too busy tending to my assets. I'm too busy planning for the future. I'm, I'm too busy because I'm being pulled away by family and friends and entertainments, commitments at work. They are all saying, in essence, Jesus, we don't have time for you. But whatever excuses they come up with, you see, the real, the real reason for the rejection is that they simply will not humble themselves before the Lord and trust in Jesus Christ. So how do we apply this today? Because in Jesus' context, 
These are people who had been invited, but they hid behind their self-righteous hypocrisy, their self-exalting pride, their self-serving hospitality, and their insincere spirituality. In our context, well, the invitation is the same. Come, come to the banquet God has prepared by entering through the door of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus indicates in his parable that in the history of salvation, that this invitation has gone beyond the, the people of Israel to the Gentiles of the world. The, the message is taken out to the highways and the byways and all are invited to come in and enjoy this banquet. And my friends, God's banqueting house will be filled. And this morning, I can say to you that if I can, if I can put it this way, the Lord himself has put an invitation in your hand. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to that invitation. And the warning of this passage. Is that if we are so foolish. As to refuse the generous. Invitation of Jesus. No matter what excuse we might make. It's not just a nice meal. That we are going to miss out on. It is, it is our very salvation. So do not miss out dear friends. On what Jesus wants to give you. This passage says, enter, enter while there's still room. Enter through humble faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you once again for the life and ministry and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess that so many of the, the sins that we see highlighted in this passage are still a part of our lives. Uh, we confess to you today that we have no ground to stand upon before you except Jesus Christ alone. And we want to say to you that we, we take him. We humble ourselves before you and embrace him as our righteousness and, and our forgiveness. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cleanse us and change us and make us more and more like our humble Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.